The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to the Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. In this episode, we dive into holistic dentistry. We go deep with dentist Ron Ehrlich, who opens up about his unique approach to dentistry and his book, A Life Less Stressed. After you listen to this podcast, you may see dentists in a different light. I had a great conversation with Ron about the mouth and anus and many things in between. We dived into his book, where we mainly focused on two of the chapters, one on dental stress and the other on postural stress. First, a little bit about Ron. Dr. Ron is one of Australia's leading holistic health advocates with over 35 years of clinical practice. His 2018 book, A Life Less Stressed, The Five Pillars of Health and Wellness, has been published internationally. His weekly podcast, Unstress, with Dr. Ron Ehrlich, explores and expands on themes of his book with world leaders in areas of stress, building resilience for individuals and the planet. Dr. Ron has fellowship in nutritional and environmental medicine and a fellowship in lifestyle medicine. He is immediate past president of the Australian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. He has co-founded Nourishing Australia, a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to healthy soils, nutrient-dense foods and regenerative agriculture, bringing together principles of holistic healthcare and holistic farm management. He's CEO and founder of the Holistic Health Institute, dedicated to delivering health and wellness to individuals and corporations from its online education platform built on clinical experience and backed by science. I hope you enjoy our chat. Ron Elric. Elric, is that how I say your name? Elric. Where's that name from? German. Oh, okay. Do you speak German? I do. It's, it means honest in German. Oh, that mm. kind of leads in with what you do as a dentist. <laughs> that's it. That's it. I'm living the name. <laughs> now, I first came across you, I think, um, when I was listening to a podcast a few years ago, The Good Doctors with Michelle yes. Woolhouse, and yes. uh, you were co-host with her, and it was a great podcast, actually, and then yeah. um, you subsequently gone on to – your own podcast uh, channel, the Unstress podcast yep. channel, and then that led me to your book, A Life Less Stress, which you're going to talk about today. But of course, I, I also know you from Acnum, and um, yeah, you're you're very different because until I heard about you, I had no idea that a, a such thing as a holistic dentist exists. Mm. Um, and and I, I really like to go into that concept with you. Sure. Um, sure. What is a holistic dentist, Ron? I don't think most people would even know what that means. Well, I think most people are aware of a dentist because they're focused on the mouth, and yet most people think the mouth is really just about uh, do you have tooth decay or do you have gum disease or bad breath. That might be another thing that attracts people's attention. But uh, holistic dentistry is, and this is really, I think, where dentistry is headed now. You don't have to be a holistic dentist. You don't have to call yourself one to be one. But a holistic dentist recognizes that the mouth is connected to the rest of the body. 
that's apparently a big breakthrough in medicine, in health. Even to this day, many <laughs> people are intuitively, they know, but uh, intellectually and when it comes to healthcare, they don't often connect it. So, so firstly, it's about recognizing the mouth's connected to the rest of the body. And then you start to go into breaking that down a little bit. And for example, it's the gateway to the digestive tract. So if you think chewing your food and preparing it for breakdown and absorption, which is really what nutrition and eating is all about, then a well-functioning masticatory system, a mouth and teeth that can break food down and a jaw joint and muscles that will allow you to do that rather than wolf your food down quickly because uh, you're just not able to chew your food effectively. So it's the gateway to the digestive tract, number one. It's also the site of the two most common infections known to man, woman, or child, and that is tooth decay and gum disease. And that affects, to some degree, 90% of the population. Over the age of 20, 90% of the population have some experience of gum disease or tooth decay. And interestingly, most people associate their health, their oral health, with are they in pain or not. Mm. And what we've observed over all the years of my practice is that really 90%, I would estimate, of dental problems have actually very little pain associated with them. So tooth decay and gum disease, the two most common infections in the mouth. The other thing is that the common denominator in all diseases is chronic inflammation and gum disease is connected to a whole range of things like heart disease, uh, cancer, uh, low birth weight in children, um, endometriosis, autoimmune conditions, fertility, pancreatic cancer, dementia, I could go on and on. And the reason I could go on and on and on is because it's chronic inflammation that's the common denominator. And because gum disease is so common in people, chronic inflammation in their mouth is also common. So there's that. It's also the gateway to the respiratory tract. So if you think breathing well is important, and it is, and we can go into that, um, then literally the size and shape of your mouth determines the size and shape of your upper airway and that predisposes you to, well, breathe, dysfunctional breathing during the day and sleep disordered breathing at night, of which snoring, obstructive sleep apnea are examples. So the gateway to the respiratory tract also very important. Because it is such a sensitive area and because so many people do not have perfect occlusion where all 32 teeth that we have evolved to have are through and in perfect alignment, um, then because it's such a sensitive area and because it's often crowded and narrow, and um, then the connection between chronic musculoskeletal pain problems like headaches, neck aches, back aches, jaw aches are all connected to a holistic approach to dentistry. And then, of course, there's oral cancer, which is the 10th or 11th most common cancer in Australia. And, and that is a whole big story in itself. So when people think about holistic dentistry, they should be thinking about those things. 
And when people think about the word holistic, I've found that really interesting because I've been a holistic dentist now for almost all of my professional life, and that is uh, 42, over 40 years. Um, people have this crazy new age idea that thinking holistically is some, some kind of new age philosophy. It actually just happens to be the way the body works, and it actually happens to be the way the planet works. So um, thinking holistically is a pretty good way to think, I think, I've, I've felt. And so that's really an overview of what holistic dentistry is all about. Yeah, I mean, holistic, anything exists outside of Byron Bay. People automatically think you're a hippie when you practice or use the word holistic, I find, which is quite funny. Yeah. But what made you want to be a dentist in the first place? Well, I was always interested in science. Uh, I, liked, um, I liked science and I thought to myself, well, I don't want to be in retail, so I'm not going to be a chemist, a pharmacist, uh, and I want, to, and I like building things as well. So dentistry seemed like a good compromise between biology, psychology, technology. You know, it's a very constructive thing. You're often building, rebuilding things that have broken down. Um, and so it's a, it's been a really interesting career. I didn't want to be a doctor. I just felt I, I didn't want to work 80 hours a week and uh, and I didn't want to uh, – well, you don't. I don't think you do, Tash, but, um, you, but uh, you know – Ron, a lot of, don't a tell lot people that. <laughs> a lot of doctors do. A lot of doctors do. And, and look, I, I found that I like that sort of balance of biology, technology and psychology and and there are a lot of other ologies that go into uh, dentistry. It's it's. I didn't start off thinking holistically. Mm. I really thought it was going to be more about what most people's experience of it has been. But very early on in my career, like literally within the first few months, I rather unexpectedly found myself affecting a few patients' headaches and neck aches in a positive way. And that totally surprised me. I didn't really expect that. And I felt I had to learn more about what what was that about? How did I do that? Mm. You know, and uh, that led me into a more holistic approach to what I was doing. And it's been a great journey ever since. And I think one of the wonderful things about healthcare is that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And as long as you've got an open mind, learning more is just adding two pieces of the puzzle. And health is a puzzle. You know, it's, I always say it's pretty straightforward health apart from two variables, and that is the people we treat are only human, and the people treating you, the doctors, the dentists, mm. they're also only human. Uh, but apart from that, it's really straightforward. Now, in your book, A Life Less Stressed, The Five Pillars of Health and Wellness, um, I really liked your chapter on expressing gratitude, and um, mm. I liked the way you mentioned your brother, Joshua, and you've been yep. in dental practice with your brother for a long time. Are you still yes. with him in I am practice? Still with him, and, and, I, and where's your practice? And been, it's in the in the CBD of Sydney, opposite. We're up on the seventeenth floor, mm. next to David Jones Elizabeth Street. Well, it's the only David Jones store now um, in the city, and we're up on the seventeenth floor um, in Elizabeth Street. And yes, um, I work with my brother. I am very very fortunate to have five. Other part, I've had five partners, um, and uh, they are just awesome. I, I'm just um, really grateful to have them as partners. They're younger than I am. Uh, they're developing skills that I haven't got, 
um, and moving along, you know, learning even more than, than I have learnt in all of my years. So they are a constant source of inspiration to me and, um, and I'm very grateful for that. But I'm very grateful for my relationship with my brother. We've, uh, we've, I was just reflecting with my wife last night that even after 42 years of practice and um, 66 years of life, um, mm. And he's a little—he's a little bit older than me. Um, <clears throat> he's two or three years older than me. Um, that I am closer to him now than I probably ever have been, and that's pretty good considering we've worked together for all that time. And uh, look, you know, like any relationship, we've had our ups and downs and challenges. But I've always—he's always been a really good balance for me because I've always felt that if I could convince him that something was clinically relevant or worth investing in. That it was probably a good idea, and um, and to his credit or perhaps mine, ninety um, percent of the time he's been very supportive, and the other ten percent of the time I think he's been a good balance for me. So I'm very grateful. We're quick, we're a little we're a little different as as you might imagine, but but um, we're also very similar in many ways. So yeah, expressing gratitude. In fact, in my book, I I say to my friends. My favourite page, I forget the page number, I think it's about 367 or something where I have my acknowledgements. 361 it is. 361. I've got the book in front of me. That's my favourite part of my whole book. I say read that. They read those three pages first and then go back and read the book in any order you like because most of the chapters are pretty um, self-contained. The book follows a structure. The first part of the book is really a dealing with, and it's quite relevant to our current health situation, the first part of the book is very much about why public health messages are so confusing and often contradictory. And I talk at length, and remember, this book was written in 2015 and 16, but it's more relevant today, Tash, Mm. than ever before. I talk about the role of the chemical food and particularly the pharmaceutical industry in all levels of healthcare Mm. and why public health messages are so confusing and contradictory. And at the end of that part, you could could go one of two ways. You could throw your hands up in the air and go, oh, what the hell? This, what, what, you know, I'm just, what does it matter? You know, it's always changing. That's not the reaction I want. I want you to say, my health is just too important to leave to anybody else. I have to take control of my health myself. And so then I lead, uh, the second part of the book is all about stress. And I define stress as anything that compromises your immune system or promotes chronic inflammation. And to that effect, I identify five levels, five stressors, emotional, environmental, postural, nutritional, and dental stress. And then after you've identified and minimized the stresses in part two of the book, part three is all about building resilience by focusing on the five pillars of health. See, I've only got five fingers on each hand, so I have to go five. Um, So five pillars of health, and that is sleep, breathe, nourish, move, and think. And and so that's how the book is structured. Yeah, I agree that um, the last bit about the gratitude was my favourite, actually. Uh, and it was a great book, loved it. But when I got to that, I, I had I was like, oh, this is so sweet. This is so nice. And I'm like, wow, you've actually you have been blessed in your life, haven't you? You have. You know? I have been very blessed in my life. I've had I've had ups and downs, um, you know, as we all have. 
but I've been incredibly blessed. And um, honestly, when I did the audio book, uh, and that was an experience in itself. Wow. You know, I, I recorded it my I, I did it in the studio for, with Audible. Um, when I got to those last three pages, um, I got really teary and quite mm. emotional about mm. it. And the, and the guy said, "It's okay." You know, the, the guy in the studio in the studio said, "It's okay. Take your time. Take your time." But uh, it's still my favourite three pages in the book. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you put that in. When I when I uh, saw this book, I'm like, "Oh, okay." I kind of skim books initially, and I think, "Okay, I know about a, a bit about this." subject in a bit about this topic, but dental stress and postural stress are the ones that I really wanted to kind of focus on today because I don't think people think about them too much. And and in my practice, I have a questionnaire where I ask patients about their, um, their gums and, uh, it kind of gives me like a red flag as to whether or not I need to go deeper into their dental, um, you know, status. So when, when I was at med school, I don't ever recall a focus ever being on the mouth. And I don't know if it's because we weren't, we were medical students, we weren't dental students. But I kind of wonder, you know, I, I check people's blood pressure, I do a pap smear, I do vaginal, you know, checks, abdo yep. checks. I think, should I be checking, just asking someone to just poke their tongue out at me and just, should I do a brief scan of things? And and you, Ron, as a, as a dentist, what would you recommend a gynecologist yep. look at briefly, like yep. as part of that exam? Well, to be honest, Tash, what, when I examine anybody in my practice, I have loops on, which are magnifying glasses attached to my own glasses, which give me four to five times magnification. And I have a headlight, which gives me excellent vision. And, there, and what goes on in the mouth is so minute and so nuanced that there is that. So I think there are some simple questions you can ask patients which will give you a clue. And here's probably the simplest one. Mm. Have your gums ever bled when you have brushed or flossed your teeth? Mm. Right? Now, a lot of people go, oh, yeah, my gums only bleed when I floss, but if I don't floss for a couple of days, they stop bleeding. I go, okay, let me ask you this question. If your hands, if the cuticles of your nails bled, Every time you washed your hands, would your reaction to that be, you'd look at them and you'd go, hmm, gee, I think I'll stop washing my hands for a few days and that'll just clear up. So so a bleeding gum, a gum that is healthy, when you are brushing or flossing it, should not bleed. In the same way as when you wash your hands, your cuticles of your nails, let alone your hands, should not bleed. For your gums to bleed when you brush or floss, that is a sign that there is some inflammation present that requires um, exploration. And that's really important. And I think that is a very good um, a, a very good screening question to ask patients. Yeah. Um, do you have any sensitivity to hot or cold? when you eat or even just breathing in air, some people have sensitivity. There is a big difference between sensitivity to hot and cold. Sensitivity to cold tells us that you are clenching or grinding your teeth. It's like if I came up and I put my hand on your shoulder and I did that once a day, you'd probably think I was a really nice guy. But if I stood behind you and tapped on your shoulder for an hour or two, 
eventually that shoulder would become so sore and so inflamed that even a cold breeze or anything touching it would be sore. So similarly, our teeth are only meant to touch when we eat, when we swallow, when we talk. And if you had a stopwatch for every tooth contact, it would add up to 15 minutes a day, 30 minutes max. Mm. So for 23 and a half hours, teeth aren't meant to touch. But if you clench or grind your teeth, they will be sensitive to cold. If your teeth are sensitive to hot and cold, then that starts to send the alarm bells out and we start to have an inflammation inside a tooth which needs attention. So there are some basic questions. Um, you know, do you wake up in the morning with a headache, neck ache, or jaw pain, an indication of clenching or grinding in your sleep? Do you have a bad taste in your mouth? Do, do you have bad breath? Um, there are other clues because I think unless you've got the loops on and you, you really know what you're looking for, um, then I think you could easily miss things. And I think this is a really important point, Tash, and that is that people should have a comprehensive oral exam. Mm. Now, by comprehensive, I mean a comprehensive, which means when we see a patient for, in our practice, we set aside an hour to take a detailed history mm. about about their um, their dental history, their medical history. Is this a new digestion. patient when you see a new patient? New, new patient. New patient. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a comprehensive exam. And, and, and that's just the beginning of it because we spend the first 20 minutes or so getting a good idea of their health. Are they suffering from heartburn or reflux or indigestion? Really important for oral health because rising acid produces problems in the mouth. Um, do they, is their digestion good? Do they suffer from constipation or diarrhea? Because as you know, the gut is where the immune system sits. And it's a really important part of the immune system. So if someone has um, constipation or diarrhea, that's an, or they have to have irritable bowel or ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or celiac disease, this is all giving us a clue as to a compromised immune system. Uh, do they have thyroid problems? Do they have adrenal problems? Have they had a history of cardiovascular disease, cancer? Um, diabetes, autoimmune conditions. There are over 100 autoimmune conditions. You know, so we need to get a snapshot of a person's health. Then we do an oral cancer. Then we start to look in the mouth and we do an oral cancer screen, looking at their lips, their tongue, their cheeks, their palate, the, roof, the floor of the mouth, the, the back of the throat. And when you've got loops on, you can see things with headlights, you know, magnifying five times you can really see things. Then we look at jaw joints. Are they, have they got a good range of opening? Can they open their mouth 40 to 50, 45 to 55 millimetres? Is their jaw restricted? Does it deviate on opening? Is there a clicking in the jaw joints? Um, that's really significant, can be significant as well. We then palpate muscles around the joint. Is the, is the, are, there, are the ligaments around the jaw joint sensitive? Is the, is the jaw joint, are the jaw muscles sensitive? Are the neck muscles sensitive? The neck and shoulder work synergistically with the jaw. So if you're clenching and grinding your teeth, you're tensing up your neck muscles. That's just a given. And then we look in a person's mouth and we assess their periodontal health. Then we look at their teeth. 
Do they have fillings in their mouth? What's the condition of those fillings? Then if they have a lot of um, fillings, we, I mean, we would always take x-rays. That is a given. A dentist cannot do a comprehensive exam unless you look between the teeth and underneath fillings and at the jawbone. And if they've got a lot of fillings, then we will send them off for a 3D scan. And that has been a total revelation to us in the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, the number of times we have looked at an X-ray in 2D and go, in, in two dimension, a standard X-ray, and gone, eh, eh, I, I think it's all right, it looks okay, and then we send them off for a 3D scan, and oh my God, wow. the amount of bone loss and infection is quite extraordinary. I mean, I had a patient in last a few months ago who was being sent to me because the, the doctor was concerned about a root canal treatment that they'd had, but the root canal treatment, it turned out, was fine. They'd lost about 60% of bone around another part of their mouth, which must have been going on for four or five years. And I said to them, have you had any problems with this? Oh, sometimes it's a bit sensitive when I eat, <laughs> but otherwise, no. Just and there was no, bone, there was no bone around two teeth. Goodness. But I no pain. Are these um are these dental X-rays two D or three D all safe in in women who are pregnant or uh, no, wanting to become no. pregnant? Uh, wanting to become pregnant is a different story. Mm-hmm. We do not do any X-rays when people are pregnant. No, oh, no, okay. no. I mean, look, I'm not going to. Pre- we use digital X-rays in our practice, and that is up to ninety percent less radiation than the old-fashioned X-rays. Mm. But I'm not going to pretend that X-rays are good for you. Having said that. Putting it into perspective, if you've flown to London, and if you've ever done that, you're probably exposed to more radiation than you would from a, a set of dental x-rays. So, so you know, I think we need to put it into perspective. Um, but when someone's pregnant, I, I, I wouldn't take x-rays when someone's pregnant. Which is why women should see their dentist before they conceive, just like, you know, we ask them, have you had your pap smear? Now you can get pregnant, you know, that kind of thing. I think the dental stuff needs to be thought about more often. Um, well, well, hmm. Tr- T- Tash, let me ask you this. I mean, would you say, I know you're involved in fertility and all this, would you say that chronic inflammation is a negative impact on fertility? Totally. It gets talked about all the time. I mean, yeah. uh, and, and, uh, and, and, hmm. and would you also say that a chronic infection would be a negative impact on fertility? Yeah, from many aspects, um, primarily mental, mental health, the, the toll it takes on people, you know, chronic yep. inflammation yep. and chronic pain and how that can affect everything else. But, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. uh, everything's connected and that's why I like your system because it's, you know, the word holistic, it, it adds kind of weight to that because a, a, a pain in your mouth is going to affect you in, in so many other ways, it's, it's not going to do anything for your libido, you know. And and I wanted to go into the bit about the periodontal disease and chronic inflammation because a, a number of years ago there was some, I think, sentinel papers published on this topic and how uh, women with periodontal disease are more likely to develop uh, preterm birth or low birth weight. And uh, it was a big thing when it came out. We were just like, oh, wow, Really? Dent yep. teeth? How do how do teeth have anything to do with go, with what's going on in the uterus? You know. So yeah, can you yeah. can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Well, that that 
really breakthrough research came out in the mid-90s. And ever since then, I think if you looked up periodontal disease and systemic health on Google Scholar, I mean, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of articles on that now. Um, and, and again, it is, it is a, two things really, I guess, that are impacting on it. And pain is very rarely associated with gum disease. This is another thing that I think doctors often fall into the trap of. They do an oral assessment of their patients by saying, have you been to the dentist lately? And the patient goes, yeah. Was there anything done? No, no, I just had a clean. Mm. Okay. Any other problem? Have you got any pain? No, I'm fine. Okay, tick that box. Oral health has been covered. We now know oral health is not an issue. I mean, so many doctors do an assessment or health practitioners, not just doctors, health practitioners do assessments of patients like that. It's The chronic inflammation link is one thing. The bacteremia link is another because if you think about what is driving these, uh, this chronic inflammation, it is a buildup of anaerobic bacteria and the mouth is a very complex microbiome, second only to the gut. And it's got over 700 different species that we know of at the moment in there. And they're often, they're ideally in balance as they should be in the gut. And the more diverse a microbiome is, the healthier it is, the more resilient the person is. But when anaerobic bacteria start to build up, they are far more pathogenic, causing disease. And that is what starts to cause problems. There's a cascade effect of bacteremia and chronic inflammation that resonates through the body. And how that manifests itself speaks to sort of this is, if you have to summarize the, the way we approach things in our practice, and I did in my book, I see life as a balancing act between identifying and minimizing the stresses and building resilience, but the whole balancing beam pivots on our genes and how our genes express themselves. So for one person, gum disease may manifest itself as cardiovascular disease. Mm. For another person, it may manifest itself as uh, poor sperm quality, because let's not forget infertility, as I know you know very well, but all sperm, all infertility is not just a woman's problem. Male, in, male infertility, male sperm motility is also a factor and periodontal, ligament, periodontal disease has been linked to that as well. Mm. So, 40% of the so, time yeah. is male factor. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, so you know, um, we often, often, you know, it's focused on the women, but it's not just the women. It's, it's really about, um, about how uh, the disease is impacting. And, and this leads into a whole conversation, not just about the, dental, the periodontal disease aspect of dental stress, but also the sleep disordered aspect of, of that. You know, you can't really separate one without mm. the other. But, but coming back to your question about periodontal disease, it is so often linked because of that bacteremia and that chronic inflammation issue. And how it manifests itself depends really on, on a person's genetic predisposition. In your book, you talk about, you give us some tips about brushing twice a day, you know, flossing every night. Uh, my question to you is electric versus manual toothbrushing. Which one is better? Well, I think, look, my, we have both. And, and I know that even in my own household, 
My wife is a very keen exponent of using the electric toothbrush and you just have to think of it a little bit differently. You've got to think of each tooth individually and you've got to think like a dentist. <laughs> Move along slowly from one tooth to the next and, and take your time doing it with electric toothbrush. With a handheld brush, which I prefer because I find electric toothbrushes remind me far too much of work and the, you know picking up a drill and the vibration <laughs> all that can't stand it you know I don't want that in my mouth so so you know it really depends I think the key is not the tool it's how it's used mm. I think the key is really a nutrient dense diet because if you are on a nutrient dense diet then that changes the oral microbiome making it far more balanced and far more um, healthy and resilient. So I think the key is nutrient-dense diet. However, we do live in the real world and we are not all of us are perfect. And to be honest, not even I'm perfect, Tash. Um, so brushing and flossing is very important. So being mindful and taking your time and doing it thoroughly is a really good way to go when it comes to it. But, you know, um, electric or handheld, it's all about how thorough you are when you're doing it. Acnum had an interesting debate last night. I'm not sure if you heard it or were on vegans versus carnivores. I did. I did. That was on our Acnum, on the Acnum site and, and, you know, the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. Yep. It was a great, great debate. Who did, who did um, you vote for? Well, look, I, I mean, I just, I think the whole vegan story is a very interesting one. Um, I think there is a whole political movement which well-meaning vegans are not really aware of and they are becoming the foot soldiers for industry mm. because I think that is, you know, my, my, people become vegans for two reasons. One is um, the ethics of animal welfare and I totally, totally get that. I'm really into regenerative agriculture and ethically grown uh, animals, that is key. What is good for the animal is good for us, and what is good for the animal and us is generally good for the planet. So that's a given. But unfortunately, the vast majority of, of animal products are factory farmed, and that is a problem for a whole range of reasons. We could do a whole program on that. Um, so that's one thing. The other reason people do it is for health reasons. And um, look, you know, I think eating vegetables is very healthy, but I think plant-based meats, plant-based products will be to the 21st century what processed food was to the 20th century. The difference is it's now being called vegan and plant-based, not processed. And so now health advocates are becoming foot soldiers for industry, and that's a whole political story. Mm. I think when it comes to the food we need to think about how we have evolved. And we have evolved. In, and to me, the, the, the vegan team said it all when Dr. Lila Mason, who I love, I think she is just brilliant. Was she the last um, speaker? She was. Yeah, and, God, and she was she, good. <laughs> she's a wonderful, wonderful pediatrician, world class, absolutely world class. She's a vegan. Hey, look, no judgment there. But, but when she said, look, we've evolved as omnivores, Stop right there. Mm. No one did stop her, but if, you know, I, I, I stopped, I said, wow, well, there is a concession to who won the debate mm. because we are omnivore. 
And something amazing happened about 2 million years ago when Australopithecus with a brain of 600 cc's evolved into Homo habilis with a brain of 1,200 cc's. So our brain increased. And one of the big drivers of that was that we started to eat food that was more concentrated in nutrients, and that was meat. Mm. And then when we started to harness fire and made um, our meat even more bioavailable, because it's not easy digesting raw meat. Um, so when you cook it, it becomes more available as long as you don't overcook it. Because uh, then, then it becomes we, cancerous. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then we evolved <laughs> even further to where we are today. And my question to vegans is this. Is there a society or a culture anywhere in human history that has evolved and thrived generation after generation on a vegan diet? And, and you know, I think that's a very important question mm. because if you want to be part of a human experiment, that's fine. I totally respect your right to do that. But please don't tell me that this is the way to eat. I think vegetables should be a part of a big part of our diet. I think it's a very important part of our diet. But, um, you know, they're, they're dangerous too. You know, they're, they're trying to protect themselves and there are phytates, oxalates, uh, salicylates, nightshades. Um, you know, gluten, lectins, plants are dangerous. That's Tash, right. Pl plants are trying to kill us. Wasn't someone saying well, that last well, night? Plants, that, well, plants try to protect themselves from predators. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, yes, and as Lila said, when you cook them, a lot of those things um, are overcome, but not always, not always. So I thought, I thought it was uh, an omnivore's success, although so I go with the carnivores because I don't agree with a vegan approach. Mm. I understand it, I respect it, um, but I just don't agree with it and I think they are unwittingly becoming part of a very a very well-orchestrated, uh, processed food industry drive. Mm. And, and the question is, how big does an animal have to be to matter? Because if you think growing vegetables doesn't um, affect uh, animals, uh, mm. you're wrong. Because mm. thousands of acres, millions of acres are cleared, pesticides are sprayed, birds are killed. You know, I heard one estimate that 40,000 ducks are killed each year protecting the strawberry plantation. So go figure on that one, mm. you know. So next time you put a strawberry in your mouth as a vegan, just ask yourself how many animals had to be, had to be killed to protect it so that it got to your mouth. Speaking of death and, and all of that, um Moving on to, I'm sorry, COVID. Um, yes. We've been wearing masks for two years now, really. And I was wondering, because you talk about a lot of breathing in your book and how important mouth breathe, uh, nose breathing mm. is over mouth breathing. Yep. And how do you think wearing masks this whole time has changed the way we've been breathing? Because I'd noticed that when I wear a mask, I actually breathe more through my mouth than I do through my nose. And I get my mouth gets dry and I feel like I get fatigued more quickly. I get irritable. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, <clears throat> this is, I mean, welcome to our, my professional life because uh, I spend my day in, my, in a mask my, have for a long, long time. Mm. Um, That's true, actually. Is, they just do that. <laughs> yeah. They do, they mm. do. And mm. I think most people are grateful that they do. I know a lot of people have been critical of masks. And um, and I say to them, listen, do you 
cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze? And you go, yeah, of course I do. Well, why do you do that? And the, and the answer is obvious. When you go to the dentist and the dentist and the hygienist and nurse are peering over you with your mouth open, do you want them to wear a mask or don't you think they should bother? And the answer is obvious. And similarly in an operating theatre. So I think when we have an aerosol um, vector, you know, that, that can stay in the air for some time and we're in confined spaces, I think there is a case for wearing masks. However, outdoors, I think there's, uh, I think that's a little bit of overkill. Um, what effect does it have? Well, I don't think it's something that I think is very sustainable, uh, and it's probably the lesser of the two evils at this point. I don't think you should be wearing it outside. I don't think we should be wearing masks outside. But I think it does raise a bigger issue about, you, you talked about mouth breathing and nasal breathing, and I think when we're playing the longer game and that is life, um, I think it's worth thinking about that because, interestingly, when you breathe through your nose, wonderful things happen in terms of filtering, warming, and humidifying the air before you take it into your lungs. But what the really amazing thing is that 60% of the body's nitric oxide is produced in the paranasal sinuses only when you breathe through your nose. Mm. Now, Nitric oxide is one of the body's most important regulators. It's um, actually, I think it's what one of the focus, it's a vasodilator, a vas you'd know more about That's it. That's right, we were talking about that today with some of the doctors. Yeah, yep. yeah. and I mean, I think it's one of the focuses of uh, Viagra, actually, mm. improving vasodilation. Blood flow to the um, penis. Mm. That's right, nitric oxide. But, but in the nose, it's critical because it's also antimicrobial. And after the SARS-1 pandemic in 2003, there was an interesting study done in the Journal of Virology, which looked at the, the effect of nitric oxide in disabling the replication of the SARS-1 virus. So how amazing is mm. that? The anti If you breathe through your nose, putting masks aside for a minute, if you breathe through your nose, your body will produce something that is antimicrobial to the viruses. And that goes on all the time, not just during coronavirus. So there are so many good reasons for breathing through your nose, warming, humidifying, filtering the air, producing nitric oxide, helping balance out body acidity. A lot of people think they've got to balance out their acid alkaline in their body by drinking alkaline water. I mean, really, mm. that's just so over oversimplistic. When I hear someone say that, I just... You just have to shake your head, really. Um, so, so, you know, one of the most important regulators of acid-alkaline balance in the body is how we breathe. And if we over-breathe, our carbon dioxide level goes down. And if we, you know, so, so that affects acid-alkaline balance. So, and that has implications on smooth muscle throughout the body, on, in fact, every system. And, and a lot of people, for example, getting up at night to go to the bathroom, a lot of people do that, and there are many reasons why. You probably know more than I do. Uh, medications, diabetes, you know, you could list them all off. But, but one of the ones that is often overlooked is breathing going out of balance because when you breathing goes out of balance, smooth muscle contracts and the bladder is smooth muscle. So in children, that manifests itself as bedwetting or enuresis. Wow, I didn't know but that. For, but for adults... But for adults, frequent nighttime 
urination or toilet visits mm. are often a reflection of disordered breathing while you are asleep. So, you know, there's, an, there's so much. I mean, breathing. Oh, my God. You know, the, the secret to a long life is to keep breathing for as long as you can. <laughs> Not a big breakthrough there. But uh, the secret to living a healthy life is to breathe well. And mm. there's a big difference between just breathing and breathing well. Have you read the book Breath of the New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor? I, I have. I, I interviewed him on my podcast. Did you? God, you've interviewed so many good people. <laughs> I should listen to that one because that James was that for was me was like, wow, that's that's that, that was great. Book. Home. It was a great book. It was a great book, and the reason I've spoken to a lot of people, we've done a whole series on breathing, um, but James was a particularly interesting one because he came at it not as a clinician not as a doctor, not as a health worker. He came at us as a journalist on a discovery and he put a really interesting historical perspective on it um, about narrow jaws and crowded teeth. You know, that uh, in, in, in prehistory, when we were on a nutrient-dense diet, um, when that was all there was available, a nutrient-dense diet because we didn't have industrial agriculture, um, then we had enough room for all 32 of our teeth through and in perfect alignment without cancer, without heart disease, without diabetes, without autoimmune conditions. Because if you've got narrow jaws and crowded teeth, you've also got systemic problems as well. And James made reference to that in his book. And uh, I thought it was a great, he, yeah, it was a great book. And and he's a lovely guy, and uh, it was a really good podcast. It was a really good episode. Yeah, uh, was it his book that mentioned that you know we eat certain foods and chew and how important chewing is to development of the jaw, and uh, and how soft and processed foods are not good for us for that reason as well. Was it him that mentioned that? He he mentions it, but there was another book, ironically, that came out at the same time as mine did. Oh yeah, and it was mm. and it was called Jaws. The Story of a Silent Epidemic, and it was written, of all people, by Professor Paul Ehrlich from Stanford University, no relation, <laughs> but I also, I also interviewed him. I couldn't resist. Wow. And yeah, no, he was fabulous because he wrote that book. I mean, he's 85 years old. He's a dynamo. He's amazing. You've got to get him before he passes. <laughs> no, well, he's, well, who knows? But, uh, but uh, he wrote a book in the 19, 1960s and 70s with his wife, called the population bomb mm. and uh, and he was one that said you know we were going to populate ourselves out of existence because we wouldn't be able to sustain it so um, you know he was and he wrote a book on just that that the jaws that the chewing of food was an important thing mm. and I think I think it's a combination of a few things it's the chewing of food but that but nutrient dense food needs chewing so you know it's kind of where do you go mm. there with that? Is it is it the chewing or is, is it the, the chicken or the egg? Or is it? Mm. It's both. It's both. Now tell me, why is TMJ dysfunction more common in women than men? <laughs> wow, that's such an interesting question. Um, I, I think one of the reasons why statistically it is is well because women are far more um, switched on to their health and in tune with their health than men are. Number one. Women go through far more um, hormonal fluctuations than men do. I think. I think that's true, Tash. You tell me. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think I think it just speaks to 
uh, the fact that women are far more in tune with their health than men. I'm not sure that that's actually true. Um, I just think uh, that, and, and I think there is the hormonal aspect to it where there are, the hormonal changes are really mm. uh, big and particularly if we throw fertility, pregnancy, uh, childbirth, breastfeeding, you know, the challenges put on a woman's body, I mean, really, I'm in awe of women, Tash. I'm in awe of them. I'm, I'm fortunate in my life to be surrounded by some wonderful, wonderful women and I'm constantly in awe of them. Well, I, I see TMJ dysfunction more common in younger women, actually. I don't see it really in okay, older women. It's interesting because I always yep. think to myself, oh, is this going to come up more in the menopause, you know, when general joint aches and pains become more common? But no, it's actually in women in their 20s and 30s. And I wonder if, if that's got a lot to do with stress. Um, yeah, it's, it's an Look, interesting I, I think, one. I think by the time, just speaking from experiences as an older person, I think um, you know, I, I think as we get older, we tend to get into a rhythm of life that is perhaps a little less excessive than we were in our 20s and 30s and, and were perhaps more focused on being well-rested. Um, and, and so I think there's a whole lot of complex social and physical and physiological reasons why that would be the case. What I also liked about your book is how you um – brought up tooth fillings and, um, you know, mercury in tooth fillings and kind of the con- controversies around that. Um, are you removing a lot of mercury fillings in your practice in 2021? We are, Tash, we are, and we do it very, very carefully. We use what is called SMART protocols, S-M-A-R-T, Safe Mercury, mercury Amalgam Removal Technique. And we're very conscious, not just of our patient's health, which we take a lot of precautions now. We have special air filters in each room specifically with, I call it the elephant in the room. It literally is a big hose that sits over the patient and removes any vapor from us and them. Uh, we drape our patients so mercury dust doesn't fall on their, on their, on their clothes or we put a little cap over their hair so it doesn't get into their hair. We use rubber dam. We use a nose piece so they don't inhale the mercury vapor. Yes, we take a lot of precautions and we 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 really do um, uh, do that very carefully. And, you know, I haven't used mercury in my practice since 1987. Wow. And, and my one of my hygienists is just going to a course at Sydney University this Monday, and and she is so that she can now she's able to treat children up to the age of eighteen, but she's doing a, a postgraduate uh, a qualification for treating adults, right? So she can now treat adults as well with reasonably simple fillings. And guess what? Her first two fillings are on Monday morning: mercury amalgam fillings, wow. as taught by Sydney University. Goodness. Right? So it's incredible. I just, she came into me this afternoon and she said, Ron, what, what do I do? And I said, I have no idea. I mean, I, it's been so long since I've used that material. Um, you know, like it is, it, it is, it defies logic. You know, when a dentist, and I know plenty of dentists that still use it, I go, and I'm just so over 
um, preaching about it. Quite, quite frankly, I, I, you know, it's not really my job to preach about it. But I say to my dentist, I say, okay, okay, I know you're using it. And I know you think it's safe and all this. Let me ask you this. What do you do with the little bit that's left over, the scrap? Mm. And they go, oh, yeah, well, I put it underneath photographic fixer. And I go, okay, why do you do that? Because I know the answer. It is illegal in Australia to take that scrap and put it into the garbage, the toilet, or the sink. You could get fined by the Environmental Protection Agency. The only legal place to put mercury amalgam is in a human being. <laughs> oh, just that's crazy, isn't it? So, actually, that's an interesting segue into, you know, when you are thinking about public health messages and you are thinking about how the authorities have our best interests in mind, just digest that one for a moment. Mm. The most toxic material known to man, woman, or child is mercury, arsenic, and lead. And 50% of the amalgam fillings are mercury, and it does escape. Most of it escapes as an inorganic form, which is said to be harmless, until it comes into contact with bacteria microbes, mm. and then goes through a methylation process that makes it bioavailable. And I think we can all agree that there are quite a few microbes in the mouth, not let alone the rest of the body. And so this material, the only safe place, according to the authorities, is to put it into a human being. Is that because it's cheap? What's it, the story there? Why Why is that still going well, on? Well, it's, uh, the reason is because it's been done for 170 years oh. and that's the way we've always done things and there's no problem with it and nobody's dying from mercury fillings. So get over it. Well, maybe I not mean, dying just, quickly, huh? <laughs> well, that's probably the key. So, look, I just think it's a silly – it's one of the – look, it's something that I grappled with in the early 80s. I, I, I didn't want to believe it. I wanted to believe that it was perfectly safe. I grappled with it. A chiropractors, really, a naturopaths really pushed me to read literature that was other than the the Australian Dental Journal. And so I started reading immunity, uh, journals on immunity, journals on environmental health, journals on, you know, a whole range of different journals. And it was the beginning of a learning experience. And, and if I chose to ignore it, it would have made life a lot simpler, but not as interesting. But that's because you're holistic, right? It's got to do that's with your right. holistic brain. Um, my dad used to have gold teeth. Um, you're, say that again. My dad, he used to have gold oh, yeah. teeth. And, okay, uh, and this was in the 80s. Now, mm-hmm. what was the deal with gold teeth? Well, that actually was how mercury got, got um, started because – in the 1800s, the, the choice was really only gold or remove a tooth. Mm. You know, there were no cheap filling materials. And along came dental mercury, which is a, an amalgamation of silver, tin, zinc, and copper. That's 50% of it as a powder. And then you mix it together with the liquid mercury and you've got a filling. And that was cheap. It was simple. It was easy to place. And suddenly people who would have had their teeth extracted because they couldn't afford gold, they used dental mercury amalgam. So it was cheaper, and, uh, so mer- mercury is cheaper than gold. Okay, yeah, of course yeah, that makes sense. It, yeah. yeah, well, well, I mean, it was, and it was easier to do, and it, mm. well, it had a whole lot of advantages. I mean, look, it, look it's a long-lasting, well, it's a, there's a whole story behind it, using it, and, it's, and, and it was a cheaper alternative. And at the time, 
the Dental Association was outraged. How can you even suggest putting something like mercury into a human being? Mm. That discussion went on in the 1880s or 1890s, and eventually the the, the dentists who wanted uh, it prevailed. And, and it's been going like that for 170 years, and it's still... Um, you know, taught at Sydney University and the ADA, the Australian Dental Association, still endorses its use. The NHMRC published a paper saying you shouldn't have mercury amalgam placed if you are pregnant, breastfeeding, a child under the age of 18, or if you have kidney disease. But apart from that, it's perfectly God. fine. God. <laughs> oh, no. There needs to be revolution. I don't think it's happening fast. I think... Uh, <laughs> If we look around and see, you know, I think what's been missing in this pandemic is a discussion about immune function. Mm, you know you what? Know, That's our, what I was disappointed by, the lack of messaging around that. Totally. I thought they could have done better. You know, there's 11 a.m. conference meetings that yep. they used to give. Yep. I thought, why don't you give us a different message, you know, that could be a bit more helpful? But anyway, I'm going to now move on to Chapter 9, Postural Stress, which I loved. And uh, I'm going to run through the list quickly, but I want to focus on two little areas here. So you uh, mentioned head posture. So these are postural stress can be called, you've written here, sorry. Postural stress can be brought on by head posture, spinal alignment, craniosacral rhythm, sleeping position, work posture, walk, overtraining, being sedentary, toilet position. Now, I'd like to go into toilet position. Because uh, people don't Great. think about that as as a, as a posture thing, but that really changed um, me when I was when I started focusing on my toilet posture when I bought one of those. Um, oh goodness, po- yes, that one of those, and that just yeah. changed everything. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us more about that, Ron. Yeah. Well, here we go again. You know, like um, what can we learn from our past? I think I think whenever we're in doubt about what we should be doing. We should look back at history and see how we've got to where we are. And up until I think Queen Elizabeth I was the first person to actually have a seating toilet. Yeah, you've got that but in then, your book. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they came, became popular. It took a while to catch on. And then it became popular, I think, in the late 1800s or whatever. You know, but look, and, and I am eternally grateful for the Western toilet because I've walked into many. Uh, toilets in Asia and all of this. Yeah, uh, Japan, hello. Should, yeah, just a two bricks and a hole in the floor and I've kind of looked at it. But, but we have squatted for millennia and our digestive system, particularly our large intestine, is, is, has evolved to optimally, optimally function and empty easily in a squatting position. And when we sit on the toilet, there's a little kink in our large intestine which makes that full and complete and comfortable bowel movement um, happen. You know, it's a, it, it doesn't happen as easily. Whereas if you use the squatty potty or whatever, I mean, I have no shares in that company, but I do have one in each toilet. Nor do I, and I love mine too. And, 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 and you know, guests, uh, guests come over and go, what the hell? You know? <laughs> and I don't feel like going in and demonstrating for them. But, but, you know, just to sit on the squatty potty and lean slightly forward a little bit, Bowel movement is is um, is much easier and more fulfilling, and and that's really important. And I and I mean again, I've done a great podcast recently with 
an awesome gastroenterologist, Dr. Pran Yoganathan. Oh, God, he's so smart. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah. And, and he's a mathematician formerly, wasn't he? He's what? He was a mathematician. I haven't explored that, but it wouldn't surprise me mm. because he's a, he's a very smart guy. And, and I love the way he's taken, you go onto his website, the word holistic is emblazoned over it. Mm. And he was he's very much into a nutrient-dense diet and talks a lot about ethically grown um, protein source meat, you know. So, so I think bowel movements are really critical. And I, and I talk in there about postural stress of sitting on the toilet and, and, you know, those other postural stresses. I mean, I was, on the, I was on the train this morning. Every single person was looking down at their phone. Mm. Now, one of the big things that happened millions of years ago when we got up on two legs was this challenge of balancing this four and a half, five kilo ball on our spine. And as soon as you tilt your head down to look at your phone, depending on how far down you tilt it, that could be anywhere from four and a half kilos looking straight ahead to the equivalent of 25 or 30 kilos looking down. And that puts a hell of a strain on your neck muscles, your your whole body. So that's, that sleeping position really talks about stomach sleeping as being the worst position for your airway, for your head, your neck, your jaw. Sleeping on your side is the best. If you sleep on your back and you're over the age of 40, your jaw will drop back and probably cause you to snore. So sleeping on your side is better for your airway, your muscles, and even your digestion. So, you know, that's that. And and the rest is all about foot structure and walking, because I think walking is the best exercise there is. You can keep doing it for the rest of your life. But if you have pain or problem in your feet, your knees, your hips, your lower back, um, then you need to look at foot structure. And that's a whole story in itself about how foot structures often overlooked in chronic musculoskeletal pain as well. Have you ever thought of um, in your bathroom or your toilets at home putting a little kind of a, an instruction list on, on how to you what why that little potty is there and what the user can get out of that? And also to you mention know, that when they're on the toilet, not to use their phone. <laughs> <laughs> double, double whammy. Of double whammy. <laughs> That's right. And how many I people escape that, to the toilet to get peace a, and quiet? Hmm? I think I might also put the three studies that were done that looked at toilet position as, as you know, in terms of bowel function. I should put that in there for light reading you as well, should, laminated. At home and at work. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one that I wanted to um, maybe end off on was um, the posture, you know, the, the thing about posing and, and, and uh, you know, the study that was mentioned, that, uh, posture and mood, I thought that was fascinating when um, you've got here uh, the volunteers who were placed in two groups where one group was strapped with physiotape oh, yes. to create a slump posture and yep. the other was strapped in order to make them sit up straight. And the ones mm-hmm. that were slumped had poorer mood and self-esteem and more yep. fear compared to those that were strapped in the upright posture. Yeah. Yeah, this is all about this is all about head forward posture, and oh boy, this this is a whole discussion about why people do have a head forward posture, and working at computers drives us towards that. But so does mouth breathing as well. There's a link between mouth breathing and head forward posture, and and when you and when you look at, at that, and you understand that mouth breathing also affects body chemistry as well 
a structure, um, then you start to get an idea of why that study showed such a positive thing about being in a better posture. Because when you're in a more upright posture, your chance of breathing better is improved. Your musculature is more balanced. There's less strain on your whole system physically, and that has an impact on you mentally. It also sends a message. Body language is important. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm doing a course at the moment studying polyvagal theory and co-regulation. And, uh, Where do you get the time? And, uh, yeah, I know. My wife asked You me make the question. time, Ron. You make I the make time. I make the time. Yeah. I make the time. I yeah. make the time. So, so, you know, yes, I think the way we appear has an effect on our, on our mood and, and, that, and the way we posture also does as well. Mm. I always think of Wonder Woman and her power posing. You know, That's it. Um, before going onto a stage, if you have to give a talk at a conference, I always used to channel her because I thought, no, because <laughs> I, I don't have the world's best posture and I always had to channel something and it was always her, you know, and it makes yep. so much sense to me. Um, well, Cash, I remember mm. seeing you at the ACNEM conference and I did wonder when you walked on with that Wonder Woman outfit. <laughs> 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 was I wearing red, was I? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, it's funny. God, that seemed like a long time ago now. Mm. Now, I've got three important questions for you, Ron, to finish up on. When does life begin? <laughs> and now, is this a medico-legal? No, uh, no. It's more a philosophical <laughs> kind of question. Oh, wow. Wow, when does life begin? Well, I mean, I think life physiologically I think, I don't know, I think birth's a pretty good starting point because uh, that's definitive. There's no argument about that. And I think looking at my grandchildren of various ages, the development in those first few years is phenomenal. And so that statement that show me the child at seven and I'll show you the adult, I know mm. appropriate, I've appropriated that from show me the boy and the man, but show me the child at seven. And there is so many physiological, psychological, spiritual, emotional, physical reasons why that would be true. Um, but I, I kind of do feel that birth is a pretty definitive moment in one's life. And that's a good place to define the beginning of life. When does life begin? And the learning experience goes on. And, and you know, hey, um, I'm, I know intrauterine, a lot goes on there and, and we could explore how the learning occurs and the impact of the mother's biochemistry, mood and food, et cetera, on, on, the, on the fetus. I think there's a huge, I mean, there's a huge thing that goes on from the moment of conception. But then we start getting into this whole, um, you know, semantics of, of that. But to me, life really begins when we're born and um, it's just an amazing ride from there. And what, and I know on your um, looking at your podcast, I love the way you feature video in your podcast as well, so you can actually see um, we can actually see you talking. But what yep. I love is that there's a background of books. You've got books in the background, and I wanted to ask you, what are your favourite books, Ron? You got five <laughs> books to recommend, or your top five, or seven, or what are some books oh, that wow. we really need to read? Uh, yeah. It doesn't have to be medical in in no, its no, no. topic, but yeah. Yeah. Tell us. Five. Well, um, Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens yes. is just an amazing book and he's an amazing writer and I just think uh, he is incredible. And, and what he covers in that particular book, his other books are also excellent. 
Um, but I think that one is a, a really a, 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 an absolute must read. I think Bruce Lipton's The Biology of Belief oh, yes. is, in, is incredible um, but because it's all about empowering you. If you think you're a victim of your genes, and I have a very healthy respect for family history, mm. I really do, but how your genes express themselves puts some control, in fact, quite a lot of control, back into your hands. And so that was a wonderful book. And I am just reading at the moment a real cracker, and that is called Recapture the Rapture, Finding yeah. Meaning in it. Recapture mm. the Rapture. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's Jamie Wheel, and, uh, and I think that is just a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, uh, it's, it's talking about what is the meaning of life, um, and he says meaning 1.0 is religion, mm. and that hasn't really served us well. Um, meaning 2.0 is this market-driven economy of trickle down the in, you know like uh, we're all going to be wealthy and we're going to enjoy the fruits of our of this and that hasn't really worked all that well and where he's saying meaning 3.0 is is internally we each have to find meaning within us which is something that resonates very much with what I've written and what I believe and that is your health is just too important to leave to anybody else um, you know, you've got to take control of it yourself. So, so there, there are three books that, off the top of my head, come to mind. I know I'm going to think of, you know, I'm going to, I could go onto my Kindle right now and and pick out some others that are that are there. I've got a few different books on the go, and it's just, but they're the ones that that if you have, if you ask me off the top of my head, what um, you know, what I would recommend, um, they they would be uh, the ones that come to mind. Yeah, I have to get that third one. I've got the first two, but not the third. So thank you. And my yeah, last recapture question: the rapture. recapture the rapture. My last question was uh, obviously, as a podcaster, I love listening to other people's podcasts, and you do a good job on your podcast. Apart from having the support of your daughters, what would be your tips for hosting a successful podcast? Um, I, I think it's to have a clear idea of why you're doing it. Um, I think that's really important. I mean, I, I, I enjoy it because every week I get to speak to somebody who knows more than I do and they answer questions and it's like a private tuition <laughs> for me. So I really like that. That's how that. I feel about mine too. That's why I love speaking yeah. to people like you because I'm like, yeah. you've written a book, Ron. Great. It's amazing. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it's just amazing that um, I think you need to understand why you're doing it. I mean, I've made no money or commercialized it at all, and I really probably should because it does cost me and it's costing, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make it better and better. And so we're, we've changed a lot of what we're doing. Um, I think you have to decide that. And I'm not, I'm really not an expert on how to monetize uh, podcasts. That's another story. I think it's passion and, and a mission and, um, and having an open mind and being a good listener. I think that's really important. Just uh, and that's something that I've just been practicing for the last six. I've done I've done now six years, and I've probably done about three or four hundred podcasts, and I've just improved my ability to listen. All right, I'm curious now. Last question. I said the last one was going to be the last, but this is my last. Who who has been your all time favorite, um, you know, person to interview? Oh, gee, that is a really really tough one. Because um, I've interviewed so many wonderful people. I mean, Bruce Lipton's episode—he's very inspiring. You interviewed guy. him. 
I did. Goodness. I did. I interviewed okay. him. Okay. I'm, I'm falling I, behind I, majorly on your podcast then. <laughs> but um, but one of the things, uh, one, one really great one I thought was Charlie Massey. Uh, Charlie Massey's written a wonderful book. There's another book called The Call of the Reed Warbler. And he talks about um, the five cycles of uh, regenerative agriculture, the solar cycle, the water cycle, the soil mineral cycle, biodiversity, and the most important one, the human social cycle, mm. you and us, you and mm, me. Yeah. So he was really inspiring. And you, I saw you um, interviewed Sarah Wilson, which I'm a bit jealous about. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, I love Sarah Wilson. Sarah's been a patient of mine for quite a few years, and I have just watched in awe of her growth. When you read her books, it's like having her with you. I can, particularly her last book, this one precious life, or mm. I forget the actual title of it, but her latest book is like you can hear her talking to you, and I love where she's coming from environmentally and socially. Yeah, Sarah's awesome. Well, thanks for chatting, Ron. A pleasure. I could keep talking to you, but you've got things to do and you've probably got another book. Are you writing another book? I am writing another book. <laughs> oh, okay. It's, it's a working, working title at the moment is called Evolution Bites Back. Oh, when's that going to come out? Well, you know, who knows? The book's never finished. It's just abandoned. Mm. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm just uh, learning a lot about, about uh, this topic and um, it just keeps getting more and more interesting. But I'm not going to, I'm going to try and make it a shorter book than I, um, than the last one I did. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, it's coming out probably in another year or so. Awesome. That'll be another podcast. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Ron. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Dr. Ron Ehrlich. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help or inspire them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people I can interview or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay fanny-tabulous.